We're going to do Messy Church session two. I'm just going to do a recap and then jump into the material for today. Okay. So when we looked at Messy Church last week, we considered the geography of the place, the history of the place of Corinth. We said it was a significant city, um, a major city 600 years before Christ. It had naval dominance in the Greek world. It was a very, very central city to the work of Hellenism, this Greek culture. And it's largely because of the shape of the country space. Rather than going around the Peloponnese, the ships would get lost in the storms that way. They'd drag their ships or the cargo across the Ishmian Peninsula, the Ishmian narrow strip you can see in the middle there, from the Saronic Gulf all the way across to the side. And that meant that all traffic, all trade, all merchandise going up to Athens and going down into the Peloponnese had to go. It was had to go through city. Because of that, it became very prosperous. It became a melting pot for the gods of the day. There was horrific idolatry there in the city, as I said last week. A thousand prostitutes descended from the the temple of Aphrodite on the top of the uh, Acro-Corinth, the the mountain that was nearly 2,000 feet that overlooked the cityscape that dominated the cityscape. And it became this place of debauchery. There was a phrase known as to Corinthianize, which is essentially, if you go to this city, you're going to get corrupt. It's like going to Sin City in Las Vegas and trying to avoid the gambling, forgive me if you've been, and, and the hookers. It's not, it's not a nice place for the Christian believer. And Paul intentionally targeted Corinth because of its significance in the ancient world. And he went there to plant a church. He had significant impact in that city. And so <laughs> I thought I had done it. I thought that was my preach going through some system. <laughs> Maybe they turned me off downstairs or something like that. Anyway, sorry, don't mean to embarrass. So then we looked beyond the history and the geography of the place, looked at the text. If you break first, first Corinthians up, the, I said last week there were five letters, scholars think. We tend to think we've got three of them, one's absorbed into another. There's lots of problems there. Paul was particularly rejected by the Corinthians as an apostle, and he was saying things like, you don't have many fathers, shall I come to you with a whip and sort your problems out? He had apostolic uh, influence because he was the pioneer of that setting. Uh, but it, things had gone awry in the church as soon as he'd left, as it would have done in Ephesus when he left the Ephesian elders. There was divisions in the church. There was sexual sin in the church, quite bad sexual sin. You know, strange stuff that the Bible says that not even the pagans do. Um, food sacrifice to idols was a problem because in the culture of the day in Corinth, in temple worship like Aphrodite or Apollo, they would have temple feasts and then it would turn into an orgy. So there's that, that going on. He had to address that because that, that was creeping into the church. Um, and then failures in corporate worship because there was a newfound freedom in Christ. Women were empowered. Slaves were empowered. It became chaotic. In the past, it was kind of, you know your place in society, in this patriarchal society. Now we've got, like it says in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, male or female, but Christ is all. And in all, and there's this sense of, you're all one in Christ, Keswick Convention goers. And, and look what Jesus did. He, put, he leveled the playing field. And so then there's this chaotic thing. Well, I've got this newfound freedom as a female. In first century AD, I'm going to speak out. And then the, Paul's having to address all these things and bring order to worship and so that, that's that and then of course we'll go into at another day there's arguments over the resurrection last week we looked at the first two elements of 
these four principles in the passage. But before we look again at those first two points from last week, I'm just going to read the passage. It's 1 Corinthians 1, 1 to 17. It says this, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given to you in Christ Jesus. For in him you've been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all kinds of knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into his fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I'll, I'll carry on in a minute. Remember last week, just to save time, I'll say this at this point. It's incredibly grace-laced, that first bit. That In spite of everything he's about to unpack about the problems in the church, the Apostle Paul says, first of all, you, you're Jedis for Jesus. You don't lack any spiritual gift. They were flowing with God. And the second thing he says is that God will bring you to a place of being blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that encouraging? With all the mess in the messy church, the, the Apostle Paul says, in spite of your immorality, in spite of your divisions, in spite of your problems in corporate worship, in spite of your problem in relating to leadership, in spite of your problem in understanding good doctrine on the resurrection, etc., etc., you are going to be blameless on the day of Jesus. Isn't that lovely? Do you feel encouraged by that? Messy church is normal. Because you bring your mess, I bring my mess, we've got a load of mess together, and Jesus moves in the mess. That's what it says in Psalm 110, Jesus rules in the midst of his enemies. And in a sense, that translates into the church as well. Jesus moves and rules and reigns in spite of the darkness and the shadow. That can invade the church. Can I read on from verse 10? I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels amongst you. What I mean is this, one says I follow Paul, another I follow Apollos, another I follow Cephas, still another I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized, baptized the household of Stephanus. I, I have to laugh every time I read this little bit. Like he's trying to say, I didn't baptize anyone. And they say, oh, no, I did, I did, I did. This, this virally effective apostle and evangelist planting churches and, you know, he can't help himself. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Remember what I said to you last week, in all of these problems that the Apostle Paul tries to fix in his, letter to the first, his first letter to the Corinthians, he uses the lens of the gospel to look at it. Okay, that's his medicine for the melee, that's his medicine for the chaos that's going on. The gospel fixes things. And if you remember, I had the cheesy moment where I said, turn to your neighbor and I won't make you do it again and say, the gospel fixes everything. And I said to you, to say to the person next to you, 
despite all your mess, you can still be fixed, which is still the truth, whether you like the cheese last week or not. I, I think it's important to understand the illustration that I get, gave last week about dislocation. Uh, I said I've had many breaks and dislocations. Uh, di- d- breaks, um, they're, they're like an ache, a pain. I mean, I've had loads of broken bones. They're, it's like a bad bruise. Dislocations scream because it goes against what is normal in terms of movement. They scream at you till you're fixed. And this would be the sense of what Paul is saying about not wanting any divisions amongst the church. He uses this phrase of broken bones, used in that, that day of broken bones. But I, I would say it would go even as far as this sense of dislocation that puts the posture in a sense of what I labeled as ecclesiological paralysis, which means the church doesn't move till it's fixed. Okay? And so the Apostle Paul is very clear what, what, the, what the cause of those dislocations were. He says that the reason, and, and remember we're looking at chapters 1 to 4 of 1 Corinthians. I hope you got a chance to read some of it this week. Maybe you did, maybe you didn't. If you didn't, perhaps read it after this service in the week ahead. The Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians, there are two types of people in the church of Jesus Christ. There are those that are spiritual and those that are carnal. And we can all enter into modes and moments of being spiritual and modes of being carnal. We can all operate in the flesh. We can all operate in the spirit. But the, but the Apostle Paul says that division is called, caused by carnality. And he essentially says in chapter 3, sectarianism is carnal. So when we see the problems in Ireland, for example between Catholics and Protestants, tribalism in the Christian church creates division. Okay, we're going to address this further on in, in this teaching. But he's, he's saying it's one thing you guys saying you, you're Jedis for Jesus. Chapter 4 says, you say that you're kings. I wish you were kings so that I could come and reign with you because they can do all the stuff. This is the, this is the thing that the Lord smiled on in my last preach last week. And I felt his presence as I said it. We have to, as charismatic Pentecostals, lose the uh, sense that people who operate in the supernatural are somehow spiritually gifted but by virtue of merit. Oh, I'd, like, I'd like an amen there. G- gifts on the church are just what I said. Gifts. They come by grace, through faith, not of works, anything from Jesus and his kingdom came by grace. Fruit is a different matter. We all can move in powerful gifts of the Spirit. I love releasing baby Christians into the supernatural and into the ability to hear God. I've seen kids and criminals do miracles. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've not seen kids and criminals with the fruit of the Spirit all over their life. They're usually the quiet ones who've been going for 50 years who sit praying for the church and its leaders. It's all gone quiet. That's maturity. And the Apostle Paul says, I wish you were king so we could come and reign with you. He's being sarcastic. Imagine a leader being sarcastic with his congregation, mocking them, telling them off. And then he says, listen, we're, we're, like the, we're like those led around in the arena. Men in chains, derided, worthless. He uses the phrase, the scum of the earth. Anyone want to be an apostle? The re- <laughs> That's how Paul labels himself. In this passage, 
we're the garbage of the earth. And you guys think your spiritual giftedness makes you special, is what the Apostle Paul's saying. Hold on a minute. Let's reset Corinthians, Paul's saying. Let's reset to what's really important and recognize carnality creates division. Spirituality brings unity. Where is the carnality in the Corinthian church? The carnality is born of preferring certain leaders over others. See, that is personal preference, and that can transliterate and translate into all areas of Christendom and Christian expression that, oh, I don't like the worship today. <laughs> I did, by the way, Bordy. Loved it. It's not my thing, not my style. I don't like the preaching today. Too long, too short, too difficult, too easy, too simple. I want deep. I want, I want straightforward and simple. That's how Jesus preached. And the church becomes this preference-orientated community. What is that? It's completely divorced from what God created in Christ. The church is a body where every member matters. What we do to one another in the Christian church, in our preference-based system, which is really consumer Christianity, is we start to try and gorge out the eyes that God gifted to the church. I don't want him. I don't want her. I want him. I... What you automatically do is you say to God, your design is not good enough. I can be better at what you do, Lord. I remember when Nigel Tween, and he led the Birmingham City Church, big, big church, nearly 1,000. He led Hales Owens Zion Christian Center. That was about 700 strong. But before that, he led uh, Scarborough Elam. Scarborough Elam was a smaller church, maybe similar to our size, maybe slightly smaller. And he was getting disappointed with the church and its traction and moving forward. And he went to the Lord complaining about his people and the progress as the church. And the Lord said to him, Nigel, Everything you need to build the house is in the house. Isn't that lovely? Church, that is how it is for us. Everything we need to build this house is in the house. But if we start becoming sectarian and preferring this leader to that leader, preferring this style of ministry to that style of ministry, we're automatically becoming consumers that destroy the unity Jesus Jesus created. Am I right? This is what the Apostle Paul's teaching the Corinthians. And so let me remind you what I said last week. Martin Luther said, and it can translate to denominationalism. Martin Luther said on one occasion, I pray you leave my name alone. Do not call yourself Lutherans, but Christians. John Wesley said, the founder of Methodism, I wish the name of Methodist might forever be not mentioned again, but lost in eternal oblivion. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who was a Baptist, said, I say of the name Baptist name, let it perish and let, the, let Christ's own name last forever. I look forward with pleasure to the day when there will be no Baptists living. You see, what had happened in the Corinthian church, there was division over leaders and probably we extrapolate that idea, division over ways of doing church. So there's a disunity in the various parties. The parties are labelled are the Paul party, probably related to no, no, no law, all grace. Maybe they were licentious, maybe they were liberal, maybe they went into a place where you can do whatever you want because Christ died for all your sins, so you can live however you want. Maybe that was the free Paul party. The Apollos party or the, or, or the, um, the, the clever party was intellectualism. Apollos was renowned as an incredible speaker and an intelligent man. 
And so maybe the eloquence of the Greeks, they like to listen to talking for entertainment, was admired in Apollos. Those who liked a deep word got Apollos, and we preferred Apollos. We're the Apollos party. And then there was the Cephas party. We like, we're Jewish in our origin. We want to go back to the law. We are possibly the Cephas party. And the Christ party, the most pious and pompous group, they might say, uh, we don't follow a man. We follow Jesus. And really what that is, is veiled rebellion. We don't need a leader. We just need Jesus. And I've seen that in churches. Oh, no, no, we don't, we don't sit under the elders. We just sit under Jesus. It just ends up creating a problem in the church, or if that person leads the church, it, make, it makes them express Christianity in a solo way that's against Scripture. We'll come to that in a minute. So what creates division in the church, whether it's over particular preferences or between people, pride and insecurity. Pride pushes down, insecurity pulls down. So quite often it's not conscious as well. You and I operate in pride and insecurity at different levels and cause damage on the back of it. Listen, a culture of honor, I didn't mention this um, last week, but a culture of honor would remove most division in an instant. Remember me teaching in the past, a culture of honor is, a, is the glue of society. Let's move on to this week. Anthony T. Evans said these telling words, the church of Jesus Christ today still remains the most segregated aspect of Western society. Look, if you listen to this phrase, this quote that I read to you now, one pastor said this, I went to the Encyclopedia Britannica and I was looking at the Brethren movement for their idealism and dreams. See, the dream of the Brethren movement was that labels would fall off in terms of denominations. For a short period of time in their history, it was realized where there were men and women, clergymen from Anglicanism, ministers from Presbyterianism, Baptists of all sorts of people from all sorts of backgrounds who met together and united under the name of Christ around the table, which was not Baptist or Brethren or Presbyterian or Anglican, but which was the table of the Lord. They fellowshiped without any man-made restrictions or rules, but the massive irony of their history was that the idealism that they had and the biblical dream that they carried were shattered by a party spirit that brought loyalties to men. This morning, I want to tackle that. Remember, last week I said um, the problems of division are thus, rooted in pride, insecurity, criticism. I know I'm proud, by the way, if I'm critical. If I'm critical of someone else, I'm proud. Why? Because pride, criticism is one of the ultimate manifestations of pride because it assumes superiority. So if you and I go away from this congregation and we're critical of people that God placed in the church, we're proud. I'm preaching to myself here. That's what creates division in our heart before it creates division in the assembly. Because all of us need grace. All of us need a savior. All of us need the mercy of the Lord. Okay, so I want to deal with the, this is a more positive end to the message now. I want to deal with the two issues that help us stop division, heal division, prevent division in the church. The first is found in verse 13, okay? Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? Here it is. We need to learn the principle of oneness in Christ, which is up there. Third point, 
And Paul uses three rhetorical questions. And he answers those questions with no every time. Verse 13 says, is Christ divided? The answer is no. Was Paul crucified for you? The answer is no. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? The answer is no. The implication of those three rhetorical questions is this. If Christ is not divided, why are his people, his body on earth divided? Now, we, we all might shudder at our own walk and work when we think about the idea that the body of Christ on the earth is united. Remember, it says, endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. That's in Ephesians. And so to a degree, when we cause division, for whatever reason, we are separating the limbs of the body. So what, we were, what we're saying is we're happy to dismember Jesus on earth. We might as well join in with those who, who whip the, the broken body of our Lord. We might as well join in with those who scourge Jesus if we're happy to stay in that place of dismembered Jesus is the way I've described it. This, not, this ought not to be the case, and this is what Paul's writing. He says, I say this, is Christ divided? Clearly the answer is no. And I, I just want to celebrate Keswick ever so briefly, Keswick Convention. I love the phrase, all one in Christ. There's a, there's a reason why that organization, that ministry is flourishing, because under that banner of truth, all one in Christ, there's people from all sorts of um, backgrounds coming to listen to great Bible teaching, to sing worship together as one, putting aside their Lutheran, Baptist, Presbyterian, Methodist, Anglican, Pentecostal values that are not central for the centrality of Jesus crucified, the worship of him as an eternal God, and the statement that they are one in Christ. Isn't it beautiful? The Lord has put favor on that. They had to go to a third week maybe 10 years ago, I don't know how long ago it was, something like that. Isn't it wonderful? Galatians 3.28 is so important. They are one in Christ, and that statement needs to be reminded to ourselves so we can fix that which was fueled by cliques, quarrels, and combustible pride that created them. Remember James 4.1 says, where do wars and fights come from among your members? You lust and covet, but you cannot have. And, he, and then he says, there's a sliding scale of destructive behavior in James, which says, these things are not earthly, they're sensual, and they end in the demonic. In other words, the demonic drives through the church division through selfish pride, insecurity, and lust for power, for position, for authority, and to change what God has instituted. This is what's happened here in this, in this moment. They've become more concerned with the issue of baptism and particularly who baptized them. See, they were running around saying, I was baptized by Apollos. I was baptized by Cephas. I was baptized by the Apostle Paul himself. Do you see, do you see how they've missed the cross in that? I, I had an experience where in 2011, I probably bored people silly saying it, where Reinhard Bonnke laid hands on me, and the power on the man was so strong, it threw the people behind. You see that guy going over already, I'm bent in a V-shape. I've never once gone around saying I have Reinhard Bonnke's anointing. It'd be very easy to say, because of Numbers 11, he takes of the spirit on Moses, he puts it on the other, or the spirit of Elijah rests on, El Elijah rests on Elisha. It'd be very easy for people who have that type of experience to say, 
I caught Bonky's anointing. I might as well be a successor. Because that's the symbolism biblically. That is the spiritual implication. This is, I mean, forgive me if it's a distracting illustration. I thought it was a similar thing. That's what they were doing in the church. They were saying, I was baptized by Paul. I was baptized by Apollos. I'll get this off quick because I don't want myself to be in view too much. They were really divided over the wrong things. We didn't get the Abonki anointing when he prayed for us. Jesus touched us through a man. And this is the same. You can get the anointing sitting in your bedroom just as much as when people lay hands on you. Not to decry the sense that the Bible speaks about a transfer of anointing through the laying on of hands. Do you hear, hear what's being taught here? You see, we find in the first verse that the Apostle Paul asserts his apostleship. Didn't he say, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ? But in no place in this is he saying, and therefore I'm special and therefore gather around me. The Apostle Paul is actually pointing to Jesus every time. That's how he fixes the problem. Was Paul crucified for you? Is his question, was Paul, did, you, did I baptize anyone in the name of Paul? Paul is very clear to point out that it's all about Jesus. I love the fact that when you think about Jesus, he didn't baptize anyone, but he got his disciples too. Can you imagine, can you imagine uh, the people if they were baptized by Jesus? The, <laughs> the Lord baptized me. Can you imagine that? You are very special indeed. As Jesus was a savvy leader, wasn't he? Very savvy leader. Jesus baptized no one. You know, the reality is that unity in the body of Christ bears out in the rest of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about it clearly as an image. We're all baptized into one body, but it also starts in 1 Corinthians 6. It says that we're all one spirit with the Lord individually and by implication, collectively, which means that whenever we create schismata, which is the word for division, what we do is we deny what God made in Christ already. So because we're one in Christ, there we are with our dislocation and it is a paralysis of the church until it's dealt with. Listen, I need to move on from individual expressions to this too the broader sense, because that will help many in this church, even in this church where there's quality people. I can feel it sometimes that we're proud of our Pentecostal charismatic heritage and we miss the value of God's church globally sometimes. See, the spirit that's found in the Corinthian church can be found across Christendom today. And the tragedy is this, many are willing to split local churches and schism the fellowship of Jesus over mere trivia. Of course, it's not trivia to the person who feels strongly about a particular thing that they believe, but many, many people are making peripheral things centrally important and causing division in the church because their fundamental convictions make them distinct from another person which says to them in their own mind, we're not, we're not on the same page. And I just want to dismantle that because the things that we divide over should be less fought for than the things we're united about. Did you hear that? We, divide, we fight. Why do we fight with one another over the things we're convicted about and say we're not on the same page on this rather than fighting as much for the things we centrally agree on? Does that make sense? Why? 
Why is it that we don't just hold on to our convictions that are peripheral? We've just got to hold them and hammer people with them until they they become like us in our thinking. And what that really is, is pride. I'm right. Now, from being a little boy, and I won't mention any names, I avoid mentioning names in the pulpit of significant famous speakers. Dad will know some of the people I'm thinking of when I start to talk about this generally. We've had people in our home who are very dogmatic about things whether it's the issue of marriage and divorce, whether it's the issue of heaven and hell, whether it's the issue of men and women in ministry, whether it's the issue of Holy Ghost baptism. They're right. They put it in the books. Everybody else is wrong. There's no other way. Have you got any thoughts? And the problem with that, automatically that person in their head creates a dividing line between other Christians. So, so when I write a statement of faith, I've done it a number of times, I make it as general as possible so I don't exclude as many people as, as I, I try to not exclude anyone. I try to get it fundamentally true. So in our statement of faith, we talk about the personal visible re- return of the Lord Jesus Christ to reign in power and glory. Every Christian can agree on that. We look forward to the personal visible return of the Lord Jesus Christ to reign in power and glory. It doesn't matter if you're a millennial. It doesn't matter if you're pre-millennial. It doesn't matter if you're post-millennial. It doesn't matter if you're pre-tribulation partial rapture view. It's, it's, it's just Jesus is coming back. And this is the problem. We are too divided over minutiae. In 1730, a 26-year-old boy named George Whitfield, who was already famous in England for his evangelistic preaching, arrived in America. He was a Church of England cleric. Never forget about that. And he was welcomed in the Americas by his co-laborers. And do you know what they were? The co-laborers of of George Whitfield? They were Baptists. They were Presbyterian. They were Quakers. They were Lutherans. They were Congregationalists. They were Dutch Reformed. And anyone else who, as far as he was concerned, preached the gospel and preached an individual personal conversion. As he crossed the Atlantic, he wrote to one of his clergyman friends in England. He said this, lovely this. The partition wall has for some time been broken down in my heart. And I can truly say that whoever loves the Lord Jesus, the same is my brother and sister and mother. Can anyone say amen to George Whitfield? And if you can't, you're not standing with historic biblical Christianity. Just just throw that out there. (laughs) Lucian. The unbelieving Greek writer who lived in AD 120 to 200 observed the Christians around him and the fellowship that they had with one another. And he wrote this. It is incredible to see the fervor with which the people of that religion help each other. In their wants, they they spare nothing. Their first legislator, and in brackets he put the name Jesus, has put into their heads that they are brethren. And because they knew that they were brothers and sisters in Christ, what was it? It was the principle of the oneness in Christ. We are one in Christ. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter what divisive names we use. Let me say that the best way to maintain local church unity and in the worldwide church of Jesus Christ is in this fourth point of dealing with division. Okay, and I'll try and get this done as quickly, clearly as possible. Verse 14 to 17 outline it, but specifically verse 17 
Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. You see, what happened when they lost the plot in Corinth because they were believing in who, who baptized them was most important, rather than preaching the gospel. They got taken up with an issue that wasn't central to their doctrines. Later on in 1 Corinthians, we might have a chance to talk about it later in this series. 1 Corinthians 15, it says, the Apostle Paul gave what he considered to be of first importance, the most important thing, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried and so on. And he lists the central prayer or hymn that he, that he wanted them to adopt as their statement of faith. But they got lost and he ha- he's having to correct that. Perhaps the sect of Paul was the reason that they had division. Perhaps the sect of Apollos or Cephas or Jesus. That Gnostic idea that they didn't need men to lead them, that Christ led them. Whatever it was, they each had their little hobby horse. But the danger of hobby horses is this. It eclipses the cross. You know, there are certain divisions that have to happen over doctrine, but none of us can be divided on the cross. Is that fair? It's basic, isn't it? But I I think we have to hammer that home. That's one of the reasons why I love the fact that we've got a cross there. But let's be clear, we're not talking about sitting in a corner and having a hug, regardless of what your personal convictions over doctrine is. Someone came to me at the end of last service and said, what about Christadelphians? We could extend that and say, what about Jehovah's Witnesses? What about Christian scientists? What about this, that, and the other? The reality is there are some doctrines and ideas that make people heretical. And we have to have division as well over doctrine, as well as being centrally united over the core faith. Paul also articulates that in 1 Corinthians 2. He said, I hear there's divisions among you. There needs to be so that those who believe the truth, this is not contradictory to what we've just taught, might expose that which is essentially heretical. And I believe it's important to outline that in the weeks ahead. I won't have full time to do that, but we'll have a little bit of time now. They were so divided over their particular Cephas party, Apollos party, Paul party, Christ party, that they were moving towards the Southern Gospel song. Have you heard it? It's this. What kind of church, these are lyrics, would my church be if every member was just like me? Do you know what some of the churches would be if every member was like me or you? They'd be sitting at home. This is why pyjama church wrecked us. It's against design. See, the Stephen Kerry denomination doesn't work. Put your name there. It doesn't work. There are 55 one another statements and commands in scripture that you have to obey. You can only do that in community, whatever your personality is whether introvert or extrovert or anything in between Christians need one another and Christian churches need anointed leaders to be a proper church Paul said in Titus 1 verse 5 the reason I left you Titus in Crete was so that you might appoint elders and finish what was unfinished in every town i.e build the church properly we need one another we need leaders there was on there was an old Quaker on one occasion Who'd left, who had left many meetings, many churches in his history. 
one place after another. So a man said to him, what church do you go to now? He said, well, I found the true church at last. How many belong to it was the question. Well, just the wife and I. But I'm not sure about Mary. <laughs> That's the way some of us are, isn't it? Now, listen, don't, don't misunderstand me with what I'm saying. The Bible teaches and will always be taught from this pulpit, so long as I'm leading this church, that doctrine is important. And as I've said, there is a place later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which we might get into, that division over doctrine is essential to, to out heresy. But we're so keen to be dogmatic over that which doesn't matter, we create division over the peripheral. We're so easily inclined to divide over disputable matters, peripheral things that we do not agree on. We might even call it truth and error. Many dogmatic saints presume they're right on certain teachings and assume that they're being faithful to the Lord. However, we should be more passionate about uniting over the things we can agree on than, as I've said, dividing over the things we disagree on. Doctrines that are fundamental to our faith are all that matter. Doctrines that are fundamental to our faith are all that matter. Do we see a brother or sister? Here's a question for you. Do we see a brother or sister? Or do we see someone who disagrees with our point of view on a particular doctrine and is in another camp? Already, listen, I don't mean to hurt you with this, but this is the truth. Already, if we're asking questions or reviewing people like that, already our pride has brought a wall of division between brothers and sisters. Because pride says I'm right and you're wrong. Warning, be careful, here's a warning, underline it, be careful not to hold a doctrinal position that says your perspective is the only perspective if it's a disputable matter, i.e. there are other people who can study the scriptures and have a very plausible rendering of that scripture that says actually I believe this, which is different to what you believe. And we need to, we need to be secure enough to be okay with that. We need to be secure enough to, to be okay with that. But unfortunately... All of us are prone to dogma. So don't fall out over the peripheral. Cling to the central. Amen? I, I think it's important, Paul said in verse 17 of the passage we've read, to keep the main thing the main thing. That's my paraphrase. I'm going to race to the finish. I'm going to be done for 12. So when we're thinking about the importance of the cross, it's very important to not fall out over anything other than keeping the cross central. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried, rose from the dead, and is coming again. Let's stick to that and not fall out over anything else. Listen, sometimes we're trying to change a church, a leader in its culture. Maybe just when we're in a church and it doesn't fit our belief system, maybe God has another house. Is that fair? We used to have a pastor who was a regional superintendent, Neelam, and he used to have people go for him after the service. And he would say, they would be going at him. You see him going at him. And he was really a very experienced leader. And he would very lovingly, with a smile across his face, but with a cheeky glint in his eye, say, there's a great Methodist church down the road. Because to change a leader or to change a doctrine of a church is not the responsibility of the, lead, of the person who is, who is not leading. Unless it's a cult, 
you're free to come and go. There are other restaurants in town. Is that clear? I hope you're not offended with that. Do you know what the pastor said to me this morning? He said, we should leave because we don't agree with it. I didn't say that. But that's the reality. Let me come to a close on this one. got two stories and then I'm done. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I respect, was teaching in Bethesda Chapel in Sunderland on the 4th of November, 1970. And he urged the British Evangelical Council not to let non-essential matters divide their united witness to the world. He outlined the book of Corinthians for them in an hour or so. Goodness. And he said that chapters 11, sorry, chapters 1 to 14, these Corinthian believers were urged by Paul not to divide over silly non-essential matters. Then in chapter 15, he began to expound that the great chapter on resurrection, and he outlined for them the things that we ought not to mark ourselves out as different in, and things that ought not to divide us, the things that we ought to stand for. It's not that the other things aren't important that you believe or I believe different to one another. It's that they're, they're very important for the workingisms, the working mechanisms of a local assembly, but for our witness to the world, the only thing that they need to see is a united church, not divisions and factions over doctrine. So let's assemble around the cross. Last story and then I'm done. I know I've hammered home the point, but I want you to leave with the point that I've made. Last, last story. Can I read you this? It's a lovely story. You'll like this. It's very Max Lucado. Someone has imagined the carpenter's tool, carpenter's tools holding a conference. Brother Hammer presided, and several suggested that he leave the meeting because he was too noisy. Replied the Hammer, if I have to leave the shop, Brother Screw must go also. You have to turn him round again and again and again to get him to accomplish anything. Brother Screw then spoke up, well, if you wish, I'll leave, but Brother Plain must also leave too. All his works on the surface and his efforts have no depth. To this, Brother Plain responded, Brother Rule will have to withdraw as well, for he is always measuring folks as though he were the only one who is right. Brother Rule then complained against Brother Sandpaper, you ought to leave too because you're too rough and always rubbing people up the wrong way. In the midst of all this discussion, in walked the carpenter of Nazareth. He arrived to start his day's work. Putting on his apron, he went to the bench to make a pulpit from which to proclaim the gospel. He employed the hammer, the screw, the plane, the rule, the sandpaper, and all the other tools. After the day's work, when the pulpit was finished, Brother Saw arose and remarked, Brethren, I observe that all of us are working together with the Lord. Amen.